Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter, episode 1.4, still talking about the Syrian Civil War. My name is Cameron Riley. How are you, Ray Harris? Doing fine. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, buddy. Now, a couple of uh, notes before we get started. As I've already explained to Ray off the air, it, it I'm in the middle of a fucking tropical cyclone here. So uh, you're going to hear rain, lightning, maybe some screaming, things breaking in the background. So pay no attention. That's just right. life in tropical Queensland. Secondly, as a result of that, uh, my three-year-old uh, terrorist is running around the house. Uh, also <laughs> may lead to the sounds of screaming, things smashing in the background. Again, pay no attention. Uh, thirdly, um, I noticed that our, I was saying to Ray, our first episode of The Bullshit Filler, massive, massive downloads, people checking it out, fantastic. Yeah, next, thank you. next two episodes dropped off considerably uh, <laughs> by half, actually, but that's okay. And look, I know this show may not be for everyone, but you know who it is for? It's for us, as are all our shows. Right. We're doing this. We learned a lot. We had fun doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, you know, I, I'm doing these shows to give me an excuse to go and study these subjects in more detail. And um, I'm going on a journey. Uh, Ray's going on a journey. Uh, and come with us, will you? <laughs> yeah, simultaneous orgasm. Uh, come with us. Uh, if if you know if people don't want this level of detail, I guess it's okay. But here, but I guess those of you still listening get it, right? We, in order to understand it, we need to really understand detail about the players, the the uh, situation on the ground, the history. Otherwise, you don't culture, really yeah. understand. And you know, if you listen to our other shows, you know how my brain works. It goes, "Oh, rabbit hole." Um, because <laughs> I go, "Oh, here's something I didn't, I don't really understand. What is that?" And then you know, because I, I, because otherwise, it's just like I remember when my my older boys were. And I don't know, first year, year, sort of late stages of primary school, and they'd be reading a book, and they just, you know, they'd they'd, they'd read out aloud to me, and they'd say a word, and I go, "Do you know what that word means?" And they go, "No." And I go, "Well, don't just fucking read it and don't know what it means. Like, go look it up. Stop. You've got it. You've yeah. got an iPhone dictionary. Like, look it up." And, <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, dad," which is how I think some of our audience is. That's my brain's like, "Oh, there's a word I don't know. <laughs> I need right. I need to go and understand yeah. that word." It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Anyway, yeah. okay. So, uh, fourthly, uh, I think four. Uh, the uh, I just want to thank everyone who supported my Kickstarter campaign uh, over the last month. Uh, for those of you who didn't uh, see the announcements, um, which probably means you didn't support it, and so fuck you. But uh, in case you're late to the game, we charmer. we successfully raised uh, some additional funds in Kickstarter to make this documentary about Jesus and early Christianity, uh, which is nice. a hugely support. And thank you for your support, Ray, in, in the many ways that you supported Absolutely. it financially and, and sexually and uh, morally. I'm looking forward to uh, all of it. And I'm looking forward to having you on camera uh, as part of it. Um, so uh, it's, uh, that's very exciting. So that's going to that's gonna be the next year of my life. Um, Excellent. On top of this. I'd like to make two points if I could. Let me know when yeah, you're done. I'm done. Okay. Going back to your first point about the storm, that is not a freak thing. That is God punishing you for the forthcoming documentary. Uh, two, uh, when you said, oh, look, a rabbit hole, you could have pretty much just shortened that to, oh, hole, I want to go down it. So <clears throat> the reason I'm saying all this is because over the next three episodes, I don't know how many jokes there's going to be. There's, this is some pretty intense stuff, and it's only going to get more intense as we go on. So smoke them while you got them, whatever. But this is some fascinating stuff, and it makes the news that I'm listening to now just make a lot more sense because now I have context. And as Ken was saying, that's what this is, context, so you can understand this horrific event that's going on during our lives. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, look, we, we're, there's probably not going to be many laughs. And I was lying awake at 4 a.m. this morning going, God, there's no laughs. I don't have any songs ready. I don't know, man. Like, uh, I don't know how yeah. we're going to do this, but we'll, we'll, we'll find a joke in there. We, we'll squeeze a dick yeah. joke in somewhere, I'm sure. We, we will find a way to be inappropriate, never you fear. Yeah. So, yeah. let's get into it. Now, last time, I think we finished up uh, saying that the Syrian Air Force General Hafez al-Assad came to power in a coup in 1970, a bloodless coup, I should point out. And we're going to provide a lot more mm-hmm. context and background to that coup over the course of the next uh, couple of hours. Um, now, up until that time... Syria had been in one of the most coup-ridden states in the Middle East. Uh, coup after coup after coup, French mandate, wars around that, you know, going back before that with the Ottomans, not so much violence because the Ottomans controlled it with a bit of an iron fist. But um, after Hafez al-Assad comes to power, they still have violence, Um from time to time, but he manages to create a bit of a Pax Assad, a Pax Syria. Yeah, um, I like that. And manages to keep it relatively peaceful. And as people who have listened to our Caesar and Alexander shows know, if, if your trade-off as a people is constant war, Internal or That's external, right. and the 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 loss of life, and the the loss of livelihood, and the instability, and everything that comes with that, or a dictator who may be brutal and may mm-hmm. re, you know be be oppressive to certain elements of society, typically those who disagree with his rule, um, right. but so. brings about peace to an extent, like less wars, less internal bloodshed, less blood in the streets, it's it's quite often not a hard trade-off for people. And I think that's what we're going to see with Hafez al-Assad from 1970, year of my birth, by the way, not a coincidence that uh, I was born and uh, Hafez al-Assad rose to power. I think if you read your Nostradamus closely enough, right, you will right. see that that's all been predicted. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And so basically what Cam is saying is that uh, before uh, al-Assad, El, excuse me, al-Assad, uh, Kufl, Syria was very Kufl, and because of him it was more Kuless. So, again, he cracks down on people, uh, He only, but he basically learned power is its own reward. You be cruel, short and sharp. But again, he did bring stability to this region. And again, remember, everything is relative. And he was born himself in 1930, so he's 40 when he comes to power, relatively wow, not relatively bad. young. Um, right. And he grew up in a poor Alawite family. Now, we've touched on the Alawites, but before we go much further, I think we should talk about them in a little bit more detail because it's pretty central to the story. Yeah. Now, I was surprised that, um, you know, they, they don't make a, a very large percentage of the country, about 11% of um, Syria. Um, they go back, they revere Ali Abin, Ab, I'm trying to, not to butcher these names, and I apologize. Ali Abin Ab, Talib, Talib, does that sound right? Uh, cousin, son in law, the first male follower of Muhammad. Uh, the, uh, the religion, or whatever we should be calling it, gets founded in the 9th century by uh, Abib Nasir. Um, and I found it really interesting because they don't really obsess over religion or all the different details of uh, religion like some of the, some of the other sects do. Um, they're, certain, they're pretty much along the Syrian coast. And um, until recently, we didn't know a lot about them because they did not share their core beliefs. You, There were no converts into. Theoretically, no one leaves the Alawites. They're pretty much just born into the religion. They're born into their family. And they pretty much keep to themselves. And they certainly have a, a persecuted past, if you will. Much, much, ironically, like the Jews. Yeah. Well, I mentioned in one of our earlier episodes that the Alawites are uh, an offshoot of Shia Islam, and that's kind of a controversial issue. I got a few emails from people uh, saying, no, they're not. They're not Shia at all. But here's uh, how I understand it. And this could be this could be uh, debated, I guess, because it is uh, quite a complex issue. And I've read lots of 
even uh, Islamic forums trying to get my head around this, but I'll, I'll take you through it as best I understand it, listeners. In some ways, actually, the Alawites remind me of Mormons. Um, many Christians don't think of Mormons as being real Christians. Mormons think of themselves as being Christians, but many other Christians don't think of Mormons as Christians because they've got kind of wacky beliefs uh, that fall way, way fucking outside, <laughs> yeah, way outside uh, mainstream Christianity. Um, now, it's a, it's very same, similar with the Alawites. The, the difference between these the, the two examples, though, is Mormons have been around about 200 years. The Alawites have been around, as you said, about 1,100 years. Wow. They were originally called Nusaris, uh, after their founder, uh, Muhammad ibn Nusayr, uh, he died, as you said, late 9th century, 868 CE. Um, but after the, his story is that after the death of the 11th Imam, Shia Imam, it was claimed that he had a secret son who was in hiding, like the minor mm. occultation, I think, that I talked about in a previous episode with, with regard to the Mahdi. The, the like coming messiah, I guess, of the um, uh, Muslims. He was in hiding. He was uh, supposedly the, the 12th imam. Uh, and Nusayr, Ibn Nusayr, who had been close, a confidant of both the 10th and the 11th imams, claimed that he was in contact with this 12th imam who was in hiding, mm. uh, whose name I think was actually Muhammad al-Mahdi. Al um, and he said, he look, he's in hiding. But I'm his messenger. It's all good. Uh, you know, ah, he, I've been tried that one before. He sends me secret text messages. I translate. It's all good. Now, this was seen as ludicrous, as you might imagine, by the majority of the Muslim community. And he was excommunicated by the Shiites. And, and he goes underground, basically sets himself up as a teacher of secret wisdom and creates his own little cult. And when he mm -hmm. died, his followers appointed a successor, and it keeps going for a thousand or eleven 1 hundred years, more or less now. Now, as you said, they they kept their beliefs a secret for much of that time, uh, which may not have helped their reputation in the Middle East. <laughs> it's a bit like the old uh, Masons, Freemasons, right? Bit of a bit of a secret handshake they had, a little bit of <laughs> secret underwear. Uh, like the Mormons have. Um, but right. as far as scholars understand today, and as far as I've been able to piece it together, the core of Nusairism, as it was originally known, seems to be the, the concept of God and triad, with God right. manifesting himself through Ali. Right. Not through Muhammad, as you would expect, the prophet, yeah. but Ali, Muhammad's son-in-law. And they believe that Ali was God in the flesh, same way that many Christians believe Jesus was God in the flesh. They also believe mm -hmm. that Ali then created Muhammad from his spirit, and then Muhammad in turn created Salman al-Farisi, who was the first Persian who converted to Islam. Right. And these three... A holy trinity, if you A will. holy trinity. These three formed the holy trinity of Manaism and Bab. Uh, which sounds like a great, I don't know, a song maybe. Manaism, like a band, yeah. Manaism and Bab. Yeah. Mana meaning meaning. Ism is the name, and Bab is the gate. Don't ask me to explain why, because I don't. I didn't get that far. But because of this holy trinity, it's um. Oh shit! One of my <laughs> hold on. One of my cam has cam has built a tent. Everybody. Yeah. One of my tent bits just fell down. Um. Uh, are using um. I've got clips. Capitate. Cap <laughs> right? Yeah. One of my one of I've got rugs and towels up over the windows to try and dampen the uh, storm oh. noise. Uh, one of a bit of gaffer tape just came off. Um, now, yeah, with with this this Trinity concept, it's been tempting over the millennia to conclude that Nusarism derives from Christianity. In fact, the word Nusaria is actually mm -hmm. similar to the word Nasara, which means Christian in Arabic. And, and some scholars over the centuries have 
accused Alawism or Nusarism as being a secret Christian sect because in on top of all of that, they also celebrate uh, some Christian holidays and honor a variety of Christian saints. Mm, but kind of asking for trouble. Yeah. Sorry. No, that's all right. Yeah. But they also have elements of Hinduism. They they believe in things like the transmigration of the soul and reincarnation after death. They also uh, have certain Greek influences. They believe each soul is a star. Um, and that if you're bad, if you're sinful in life, you'll be re- right. reincarnated like as a cockroach. Um, and then you have to go through nine levels of human oh. existence to get back up to the tippy top of the tree. Um, Do I have to? Can I opt out? Of going through it all again? Well, yeah, that's a lot of work. A cockroach, yeah. it's just unmasking. If you don't go through it, you just stay as a cockroach, I think, for all eternity. Oh, okay, yeah. fine. I'll Fucking cockroach. Um, but there's also elements of, of Zen Buddhism or Advaita Hinduism, which is sort of the uh, non-dualistic side of those two religions that, that I've studied. Uh, for the, the, right. the Alawites apparently believe that they can know God through their own direct experience of reality. It also sounds similar to the Sufis that mentioned in an earlier episode. So they're, they're a big mishmash, uh, uh, syncretic religion that take bits and pieces from all over the place. So they're not straight up Islam. Yeah, popery. They're not straight up Muslims, and that's caused them a lot of problems. In the 14th century, uh, a, a Sunni theologian, Ibn Tamiyah, who actually uh, contributed a lot to what eventually became Wahhabism, the right. founding religious part of the House of Saud, uh, he declared that Nusaris are more infidel than many polytheists and that war Damn. and punishment in accordance with Islamic law against them are among the greatest of pious deeds. So wow. they've been very unpopular for a long, long time. After he made that declaration, they fled into Iraq. Uh, no, sorry, they fled from Iraq into northwestern Syria. Uh, that's how they ended up in mm-hmm. Syria. And from that point on, Sunnis used the term Nusari to mean pariah. So when, you, when you're very, the name of your religion is 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 used to basically say you know somebody who's a scumbag. Then uh, right, it's like you know, yeah. God damn, you're such a Mormon, Ray. If I said stuff like you know that would be <laughs> right, you know, right. It's, oh my- you're not in a good position. During this period, the Mamluks, the Muslim slave soldiers, killed twenty thousand Nasaris. But when the Crusaders raged through that part of the world, uh, hacking and slaying their way to glory, uh, to heaven, right. heaven. Hacking, hacking their way. Kill your way to heaven. Kill. That's the name of my first album. <laughs> to heaven. Um, the Nasaris said, hey, hey, we are just like the Christians. And so mm-hmm. they were spared. Ah. We also believe in the Holy Trinity. And they went, really? Yeah, we Christian holidays, you know, Christian saints. They're like, all right, all right. Mind you, the Crusaders <laughs> tended to kill Christians as well. Is there's, there's a, some pope that said, oh kill them all and let God sort them out? Um, what's that? What's that lizard or that something like a lizard where it can change colors if you put it chameleon, whatever? I mean, these people can just adapt to whatever it takes. So you know, good for them. Yeah, well, they've kind of. they've had to be able to adapt to survive. Yeah. But then, when the Ottomans get into power, they issue a decree mm-hmm. in 1571 which declares Nusaris are non-Muslims, and then they get beheaded all over the place. But then when the Ottoman Empire crumbled uh, after World War One, and the French took control of Syria under the French mandate, uh, the Nusaris again stressed how close they were to Christianity, how similar they were to the Christians. And as a result of that, they were given their own state by the French in 1922. Yeah, I read about that, you know, along the coast and the mountains and stuff like that. And basically, from what I read, the French almost felt sorry for them. It's like, you guys are pretty much 
backwards culturally compared to everybody else around you, the more cosmopolitan Sunnis. So we're going to give you your own state. You stay here. Don't mix with them. And that way they can't either kill you or at the very least dupe you or rip you off because the French didn't think much of them compared to the more uh, polished and urbane uh, Sunnis. So again, they were they were trying to help, but obviously after World War One, they were given this by, the, I guess, the League of Nations. So it was pretty much their territory to do with what they wanted. Yeah, I think you're being a little bit generous about French motives there. I know I was that was tongue in cheek. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The f- but they they did recognize the difference between the two. But the, yeah, they were they were just going to make it nice and easy and keep these people apart. Well, I think that was deliberate strategy on behalf of the French: divide and rule, uh, mm-hmm. divide and conquer, which is a theme we're going to see a lot of in upcoming episodes. This whole idea of divide and rule. You know, the, the French, when they took control of Syria, were concerned, I think, about the, the potential power of these Arab peoples uniting against them. There was a, quite a bit of bloodshed mm-hmm. when the French took control of the area. And uh, so their, their strategy, the French strategy, was to divide them, divide them all up in along sort of ethnic lines and then... Uh, drive the antagonism between the different divisions and keep them fighting each other and then the French could just sit over the top of the whole thing. And that has been the strategy that the US has also been playing in the Middle East ever since. For the last hundred years, divide, uh, uh, play up sectarian tensions and uh, just let them fight each other has been, you know, a, a key point in, right. in in keeping the Middle East fragmented. And I'm going to go into a lot more detail about some of the strategic thinking behind that. Yeah, the, the French are pretty good at that. I think it's the British that have the PhD in divide and rule, but the French are the French are right up there. They certainly learn from them. And like you said, that is one of the most effective ways um, to keep a much more numerous people down, you know, focused on each other. Now, in fact, the French fucking invented it, my friend. Really? Yeah. I was going to give all the credit to the British. No. Oh, man. Cardinal Richelieu. Uh, and I'm going to get into that in more detail later, so let's not jump okay. ahead too much. Cool. All right. Um, <clears throat> now, I don't think we've talked uh, enough about the French mandate. We touched on it briefly in an earlier episode, but I want to explain a little bit more about what happened. So, yeah, as you said, after World War One. The League of Nations had the Paris Peace Agreement around 1919, I think, figuring out how they were going to divide up the Ottoman Empire amongst the allies. And there was a a secret agreement that the French and the British had signed between themselves back in 1916 called the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Basically, they just did like a Churchill trick and just drew a line in the on a piece of paper and said, "All right, after the war, we're going to take this bit. You're going to take that bit of the wow. of uh, the Ottoman Empire." Um, and in terms of Syria, there was a, a line basically drawn halfway across Syria from east to west, which divided oh, the Syrian rough rectangle into two parts. The southern part, which they called Palestine, was going to be assigned to Great Britain. The northern part, that they mm-hmm. called Syria and Lebanon, was going to be assigned to France. Now, the southern part was subdivided even further into Palestine in the west and Transjordan, an entirely new mm. name and country, uh, to the right. east of the River Jordan. And Syria then was subdivided into five parts. There was Lebanon, Syria... Jabal al-Druz, uh, the Sanjak of Latakia, and the Sanjak mm-hmm. of Alexandretta. Damn. Yeah. Now, uh, each of these parts of what used to be just Syria, <laughs> all of this was Syria. So, you know, uh, as right. you and I know, going back to Greece and Rome, uh, the ancient stories, this whole area was effectively Syria. Under the Ottomans, this was all one big, uh, just part of the Ottoman Empire. It was all Syria. But now it's getting diced and sliced into a range of smaller countries based around, uh, as I said, sort of ethnic and uh, sectarian uh, divisions. 
And a lot of the problems that this area has had ever since uh, stem from this kind of dividing up. Robert Fisk, uh, I don't know if you've ever read any of Robert Fisk's stuff, Ray? Don't believe so. He's um eminent British journalist, uh, been around since the late 70s, I think, early 80s. He's there, I think mostly was for The Independent. He's been based in uh, the Middle East since that time. So he basically lives and reports from over there. He's, he's written a number of great books, um, and he's one of the he's one of my go to guys when I'm trying to understand the Middle East. Partly because he's funny as fuck and re- right. really dry, and you know knows the area, has lived there. You know, as I said, on and off out of Beirut, places like that for decades. Speaks the languages. Um, the Great War for Civilization is one of his books that I've cribbed a lot from for these next few episodes. That book, by the way, starts off with. So the first time I met Osama bin Laden, um, <laughs> and uh, and he talks about the first time he met him, which was like in the eighties, and then he goes, and then the last time I met him was when the Americans were hunting him, and uh, the first time I met him, the Americans were helping him. The second time I met him, the Americans were hunting him, and you know, <laughs> if for no other reason, if you're interested in the Middle East and Al-Qaeda and the war on terror and all that stuff, you should go read this book um, to just get an eyewitness account of bin Laden from somebody who, you know, a Western journalist who had met him on two occasions. not saying they were best friends, but he met him, spent time with him, got to know him a little bit, and his depiction of bin Laden is fascinating, really fascinating. Anyway, uh, here's a quote from Fisk about uh, the French mandate. In the aftermath of the 1914-18 to war, France was given the League of Nations mandate for Syria, an obligation that it honoured by chopping part of the Mediterranean coast off from Syria to create the Christian-dominated Lebanon, which was to collapse in civil war 55 years later. And by destroying the Syrian army, which had trusted the British promise of Arab independence in return for its help against the Turks. The Syrian Minister of Defence, Youssef Azmi, led his cavalry against French tanks in the narrow valley of Massaloon on the border between present day Lebanon and Syria. There was, of course, no border then because Lebanon was part of Syria. General Henri Gourard's mechanized armor in a largely unrecorded historical precedent to the German tank attack on Polish cavalry 19 years later annihilated the warrior horsemen from Damascus and left them to rot in the summer heat. So just in case people think the uh, French mandate was all happy and rainbows and sunshine and unicorns and the Syrians were dancing in the streets and waving French flags... No, no. Yeah. And this whole thing about the uh, Syrian army that trusted the British um, and and helped them against the Turks and then got fucked over. If anyone, and, you know, we've talked about uh, the Lawrence of Arabia film uh, in the past. I'm not sure if this this, this Mm -hmm. series or another series. One of these shows. Yeah. Amazing film. Don't get me wrong. Wonderful, wonderful, amazing film. Historically... Yeah. fucking dubious. In fact, that's one of the ones that the History by Hollywood guys, Martin Darlington and his Aussie offsider should do. Uh, dodgy as fuck, the way that the history right. is portrayed there. Um, for example, Lawrence, T.E. Lawrence, in the film it's portrayed that he was aghast when the British betrayed the Arabs. and uh, But in, in reality, he knew all along apparently, according to Seven Pillars of Wisdom, his own autobiography, that the British were going to fuck over the Arabs. Um, and he kind of went along with it. Um, right. Let them fuck them over because he was a Brit and that's what you do. Anyway, so they, they, they all got fucked over by the British and then the French, <clears throat> as is the story of the world. Now, with that division, the Nusari, to get back to them, got the Sanjak of Latakia, as you said, it's uh, sort of on the coast of the Mediterranean up there. Sanjak is an Ottoman term for province, basically. Mm. Okay. And the French also decided that the name of the sect should be changed from Nusari 
to Alawite, which means followers of Ali. And as I think we explained in an earlier episode, Shia means partisans of Ali. So now they're basically all Shias. They're all kind of friends of Ali. Uh, And this gives the Alawites some respect for the first time, mostly because the French are enforcing it. And they get their own independent state. And that's where their rise to power begins. Yeah, that's not... I mean, yeah, it's a promotion by just repackaging them because now you're lining them up with everyone else. So they're they're semi-equals. At least they're in the league now with the Sunnis and the Shia. So, you know, good for them. But obviously those other two groups aren't going to remember their origins and they're certainly not going to get over there accepting their beliefs anytime soon. No. Particularly as the Alawites come to power. Mm-mm. Now... As I said, this um, new Alawite state was in the western part of Syria, just above Lebanon on the Mediterranean coast. And this is still where most of the Alawites are today. And it's also where the Assad family comes from. Right. Now, towards the end of the French mandate, because in the way these mandates worked is it was like limited imperialism. The League of Nations said, okay, look, these these you know, dumb fucking Arabs can't rule themselves. Look at them. They're wearing sheets on their head and riding camels. They obviously can't rule them. They need they need some civilization. Um, so right. you can go in there, but this isn't occupation. This isn't imperialism. This isn't colonialism. This is a mandate. Your, what is my mandate? Well, your mandate is to get them ready for independence. Uh, how do we do that? Well, you know, just rape and pillage as much as you can for the next uh, 20 odd years. And at the end of it, you have to fuck right. off. But, you know, you get 20 years to use it as a strategic and tactical base of operations, if nothing else. Anyway, so when they were leaving, the Alawites sent a, uh, an email uh, to the Jewish Prime Minister of France, Leon Blum. Mm hmm. Uh, uh, what was the name of the guy in the producers? Wasn't he a blue? Wasn't there a blue yeah, in that as well? Yeah, hmm. Leon Bloom. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they were trying to secure their independence. They were like, okay, look, after you guys fuck off, we want our own state. Now we need to keep our own right. state even after the French leave. And they said, look, we're just like we're just like the Jews, Leon Bloom. And this mm-hmm. this would have been uh, in the what the forties. The They're like we're like the Jews. We've been oppressed forever um, right. because people hate us. We we need our own we need our own lands, our own state. And the French went, yeah, right, good argument. No, sorry, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <clears throat> um, the the Alawites. There were several revolts uh, ended in failure, and so they had to figure out the next plan. That's that's pretty much like you and I, two strapping, good-looking guys, mm-hmm. being sent to prison and put into general population. We're like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa, yeah. really sexy here, sex, sexy meat. Uh, could we please have our own little... No? Okay, thank you. Then we get thrown in. So, yeah, how they expected these people... <laughs> But but again, the Alawites find this, and this, I don't know if they were the ones who came up with it, but they are able to exploit an idea that allows them to slowly, you know, for some of them anyway, not obviously all of them, um, to, to incorporate themselves into the wider community and gain positions of power. So they might be a little odd compared to everybody else, but, but they're just as tough as everybody else as well. I'm too sexy for my love. Too sexy for my love. Love's going to leave. of you like shaved head string singlet on hot pants in prison <laughs> dancing to that song the two of us a little that's the only- <laughs> I, reminds me that's- so I had my first meeting with the director of uh, our film uh, yesterday post the, the Kickstarter campaign 
and we were sort of talking right. about the, the 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 plan for it, the tone, of the style. I said, and I absolutely am adamant that the final scene is going to be a dance number, big Bollywood dance yes. number in the middle of the street with a, uh, a, a drone shot where the drone pulls up into the sky. The dance number's being led by Jesus and I. It starts off with me and Jesus in the middle of the street just doing a bit of a I'm Aww. too sexy dance, and then all these people come rushing out, and we do a big dance. And he said, yeah, okay, that, that big, sounds doable. Like flash mob. Sounds doable in our $50,000 budget. Yeah, flash mob. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, yeah, the Halloites say they want their own state, and the French go, no, fuck off. So they have to adapt and they kind of figure out that um, they need to sort of unite with the Syrians and they need to figure out how to do that and keep their heads on their shoulders. Now, the the Sunnis that were the majority of the rest of Syria um, had an incentive to make this deal go down as well because the the state that the Alawites had controlled, Latakia, um, actually had the port of Latakia, which is the mm-hmm. principal port of Sirius. The rest of Syria is you know, kind of landlocked. Um, right. So this was their access to the Mediterranean. Now, Latakia, interestingly, was known is in antiquity as Ladochia or Ladochia, founded in the 4th century BCE by our old mate, Sally. No. Sally. Um, for those of you who don't listen to our Alexander show, that's uh, Seleucus, who becomes he was one of Alexander the Great's generals. After Alexander right. dies and they all fight it out, he becomes Seleucus the first Nicator. Uh, he invented nicotine, um, for which we all say thank you. And he, his mother's name was Laodike, and he named this port ah, city after her. That's sweet. So what you're saying is all of our shows <laughs> are related; they're interconnected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're bringing it full circle, my friend. Um, Hello? Yeah, what? No, I just, I thought you, never mind, we're all good. Hello? What? Hello? So then the Alawites try and merge with the Muslim mainstream, and there are fatwas that were, people know what a fatwa is, it's not where you fart underwater, that's different. (laughs) A fatwa is... uh, one of these things that these uh, Muslim clerics issue from time to time to say, we kill the kill the uh, infidel. But in some of the fatwas that were coming out after this era, era um, Alawites and Sunnis were confirmed as just being different denominations of Islam. Just as the Catholic, the Orthodox, and the Protestant are yet Christians, so the Alawi right. and Sunni are nevertheless Muslims. Whew, so they're accepted in barely because of a fatwa, and now they can start to, I guess, incorporate themselves to whatever degree they want. And and I still find this fascinating that, and we're going to get into this later. But it's not like every single um, Alawite out there suddenly goes yeah, and they rush to this. A lot of them keep to themselves, but some other ones who uh, either want to be upwardly mobile or just flat out use the word ambitious and obviously obviously a lot of our shows deal with very ambitious men some of them see this as an opportunity to have a much bigger life than what they would have had had some opportunity like this not come along yeah and there's one big opportunity that they are provided uh under french rule and that is to get involved in the army now um you know, there's some interesting elements to this. So the French wanted to um, keep the, the different uh, sectarian tensions elevated. And so one, mm-hmm. of their, one of their ideas for that was to keep the army as diverse as possible. So you had guys from all sides of the sectarian divide with guns. Um, and... So, again, the idea here is if they're fighting each other, they're not going to be turning on us. So keep them fighting each other for as long as possible. Otherwise, they might, you know, sort of unite against our rule, and we don't want that. Now, the Alawites were poor, and getting an opportunity to have an income in the army was was a great opportunity for them. So a lot of them joined the army. It's a bit like... I don't know. It's like the black population, the poor black population in America... Uh, who joined mm-hmm. the army? A lot, a lot of poor 
folks join the army in the US, particularly you go back 2003, uh, a lot of a lot of poor folk were getting rounded up. Hey, go and kill the towelheads. Uh, they were like, yeah, right. Hoorah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were getting sinus, um, um, signing bonuses, um, and they were, they were going to literally get, uh, healthcare and stuff like that. They were going to get a level of pay with all due respect. You know, it's all relative, um, to a level of pay they hadn't got before. So you get healthcare, you get pay, you get a signing bonus, you get to be honored in your community. So uh, it was a propaganda <clears throat> ploy that worked yeah. brilliantly and thousands, if not tens of thousands, particularly uh, signed up after that. Particularly so, if you get injured, you yeah. get so honored in your community when you go back to the United States. Up until the point where you get injured and you actually need the VA, yeah, it's pretty sweet. Uh, after that, it sucks tremendously. There's, um, I won't say a mate of mine, but a guy that I've had a bit to do with over the years over there, a, a rapper, Graydon Square. He's an atheist mm-hmm. rapper. He's a, he's a, a physicist, atheist rapper. Um, all of wow. all of his rap is about science and physics and cosmology and things like that. But I interviewed him uh, for a podcast 10 years ago, and um, he told me his story. He got done. He was a, he said he was a young black guy, got done for, um, I think, some sort of B&E or holding up a liquor store or something like that. And the right. judge basically gave him a choice. Uh, you, can, you can go do five years in jail or you can join the army for five years. And he said, okay, I'll join the army. So he went, did a couple of tours of Afghanistan or Iraq, one or the other. And um, when he was there, he got involved in, he said, like Bible study groups that they were holding on the camps and became a believer and then got back to the US and somehow managed to get some sort of, to go to university and then started studying science and became an atheist and um, become a rapper. Yeah, but but I always thought that was interesting. He was given the option, go to jail or join the army. A, a moral, moral follow-up question. Isn't that the judge using or abusing his power to send this person to fight a war that he may or may not believe in uh, to help keep the state going? I mean, that just seems pretty damn abusive of one's power. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know how it works over there, but yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would choose the army too, but I'm just like, yeah, you can go fight for this country and you can go do something whether you agree with it or not or whatever, or you can go to jail. So yeah, it's a- Are you insane? Anyway, anyway, just the moral implications of a judge using their power in in such a way. Are you you insane? You'd go and and be around IEDs and fucking rockets and bullets flying everywhere, or you can go to jail where the biggest thing you've got to worry about is getting ass raped. Like, I would take ass raping over an IED blowing my legs off any day. I don't know about, I don't know why you would choose that. That's insane. Yeah, well, there you go. I don't know. As I've said before, when I eventually end up in prison, um, <laughs> I am going to suck whatever dick I have to suck and just study study chess for the, so you, for the duration, you, you know. You're a pragmatist. I, I respect that about you. <laughs> Anywho. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying I like it. I'm just saying. <laughs> you're like, I, I'll do it. I'll, I'll suck the hell out of it. I'm not going to like it. Uh, I'm not gay or anything. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Shout out to all of our gay listeners. We love you. Full respect. Do whatever the fuck you want. Particularly our lesbian listeners. You know, even more respect. And our transgenders. Anyway. um, And the queer. Um, Fuck. Where were we? Now I've gone down the road. So, yes. So, they they joined the (laughs) army. Jesus. What time is it? How much longer have we got to go? 15 minutes. 44 minutes so far. Yeah. So, they joined the army. Now, um, the Sunni who, again, with the majority of this area, considered working in the army as sort of like a scummy job. No no Sunni worked right. their salt. It was like something that only poor people did. It reminds me, actually, of um, another book I was reading, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. He was saying when he first went to Saudi Arabia in the early 70s, um, there were goats walking around eating garbage and his cab driver told him no self-respecting uh, Saudi would wanted to be a garbage collector. 
So no one right. no one was picking up the garbage. They just had goats walking around eating it. Um, that's damn cheaper. You don't have to pay them either. Like that's win win. Good strategy. Um, yeah. So yeah. So so the Alawites uh, by the end of the French mandate, the Alawites formed half of the eight infantry battalions in the army and uh, end up as a result, being able to take control of the state. So the Sunni kind of fucked up by allowing the Alawites to take control of the armed forces, and that is pretty much how they come to power. And when the Ba'ath Party Ba'ath Party assumed power in 1963, Alawite membership of the Ba'ath Party quintupled. Damn. And that I'm, is I'm sorry, just a quick power. interjection. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking down on the Alawites. I'm a Sunni. I'm better. I thought you were going to follow all that up by saying, and all the officers were Sunni. But clearly that's not the case because the army is something that's beneath them. You don't get your hands dirty working with weapons. Hell, I don't know. But the point is you let your political, cultural, whatever rivals become half of the armed forces. Who does not sit back and go, mm-hmm. this This is not good math? The people. I, I, I Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to join because I'm too good for that. But <laughs> this is going to lead to something bad. How, how does someone, how does a group of people not see that coming? The, the, the minority sect you've been oppressing and beheading for 1,100 years <laughs> suddenly yeah. becomes half of the army. Yeah, I'd say the writing was yeah. on the wall there. Um, <laughs> anyway. Anyway, so when Havez al-Assad comes to power in 1970, and we'll talk a little bit later on about how that happened in some more detail, but he's pretty smart. So one of the first things that he did was Sunnify the Alawites, Mm. or Syria, really. Um, A policy of de facto Sunnification. He forbade the Alawites from venerating Ali too excessively. Um, Of course, remembering our earlier episodes, the, 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 the core of the Sunni Shia divide is this idea of the succession after the death of Muhammad. The Shia believed that Ali was um, supposed to be the next uh, leader because of this mm-hmm. hadith that Muhammad supposedly uh, had left, whereas the Sunni um, didn't believe it was succession through the bloodlines. They believed that it was open to a vote, the community ummah, yeah. the vote of the Muslim community. Competency. So venerating Ali too excessively, not a good look. So Hafez is like, he's, he's, he's super smart, as we're going to see through the, these next few episodes, wicked, wicked smart and, and brutal and tough and um, just had his shit together. Like a really, really, if, you, if, if, you want, if you're going to have a dictator, you want it to be Hafez al-Assad. Yeah. <laughs> he's a good, have a good one. He's a good dictator. A yeah, one. yeah, smart dictator. I'm not saying he was benevolent, but he was... Right, there's a difference. Yeah. Um, so he's like, look, yes, we control half the army, and, and yes, I'm now the president, but let's, let's, play, let's play this game smart here. Let's not rub their fucking noses in it. Right. So no venerating Ali excessively, and you have to adhere to all Sunni practices. I'm going to adhere to Sunni practices. So he built wow. Sunni mosques in Alawite towns over in that Alawite, what used to be the Alawite state over near Latakia. And he prayed publicly, fasted, um, followed all of the Sunni traditions and encouraged his people to do the same. He married a Sunni woman. And there you go. That, Who was actually came from a rich and powerful family? That doesn't hurt either. Yeah, that's always a good idea. Have the army and money? Yes. Okay, good combination. Um, And he had already changed his name from Wahash, which meant wild beast, to Assad, which meant lion. And henceforth, he was known as the Lion of Damascus because that's what Assad means. (sighs) But as you indicated earlier, Ray, only a relatively small percentage of the Alawites really prospered during Assad's rule, mostly those who moved to Damascus and sort of the major urban right. areas. For the most part, the rest of the Alawite community just um, kind of hid their religious idiosyncrasies uh, in return for a higher level of safety, security, just kind of hid the fact that they were yeah. clones 
Um, they dressed as <laughs> they dressed as humans. They got jobs on the Battlestar Galactica. They went about their they went about and acted in every way like they weren't skin jobs. Right. Well, they had to because there was only twelve models of them, and if you keep seeing the same person over and over again, you're going to get suspicious. But yeah, so he's which, like which, saying, which. at home, do whatever you want. But as far as out where people can see you, tone it down some, be more Sunni-like, and it's just going to get. We're all just going to be able to benefit from that. We're all just going to be able to get along, and you're not going to make my life the new leader uh, harder than it has to be. So again, um, he's willing to sacrifice some, you know, I mean, religious beliefs, some some core beliefs here. Uh, to trade that in for power, and as we're going to find out, he was pretty okay with that kind of thinking. Getting back to Battlestar Galactica, like, that always yeah. bugged me. Like, this massively advanced Cylon civilization couldn't right. invent some different models. Like, they were like, you know what, it's probably, it's probably like, a, it's getting, A, it's getting a bit boring. There's only 12 models of us right. to fuck. I mean, how boring is that going to get? B, B uh, you know, the humans might wake up to it sooner if they keep seeing the same faces. Like, let's just invent some new models or at least, you know, come up with some fake facial hair or something. Like, really? Something, Would that kill yeah. you? Like, well, put a fake beard on? put a random random generator in the software. Just <laughs> kick out something different every once in a while. I think this is going to work for us. <laughs> dumb, dumb, just dumb, these Cylons, man. They deserve everything they got. Yeah. Um... <laughs> So yeah, they 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 just kind of keep it as you say, keep it on the down low. That's what that's what Assad said. Look, just keep it on the yes, we're weird and creepy. Just keep it on the down low. No one needs to know. Uh, just pretend like you're normal, like Mormons do. You yeah. know, just go around and smile, and no one needs to know that we believe as the Mormons do that if you're righteous when you die, you become god of your own planet. Yeah. No one needs right. to know that. They're- Don't mention that in public. <laughs> Put and on his car, on his uh, limousine or his tank or Jeep or whatever, on the back of it was a bumper sticker that said semi-Sunni. So just focus on that. You know, we're semi-Sunnis now. This is going to work for us. So they the, the Nusaris Islamized themselves and that helped Assad stay in power. In a country where the constitution states that the president must be Muslim. Now, Uh-oh. it didn't always say that and we will get into that a little bit later on. But uh, this rise to power obviously put a bit of a target on the backs of the Alawites. Um, they, despite their attempts to semi-Sunnify themselves, um, you know, they really stopped blending in when enough of them became the the center of political and military power in Damascus, which inevitably right. is what happened under 40 um, odd years of Assad rule. What are we at now? Sort of 47 years of Assad rule. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what's going on in the civil war today is a backlash against Alawite rule. I mean, from the perspective of many Muslims, an Alawite being the president of Syria is like a Jew being the Fuhrer of Nazi Germany. Oh, God. Jesus. Seriously, that is... That is... That is the equivalent. That is, yeah, the closest analogy. These people were treated as scum, they were infidels, they were beheaded for centuries. All of a mm-hmm. sudden, they're running the place? Nah, yeah. I don't think so. I mean, at least they're not running Mecca or Medina, but they, they're running so. Damascus, you know. And, and, and so anyway, so this causes Ooh, big problem. It's like Tom Cruise being in charge of the Catholic Church. <laughs> no, I don't think that analogy works as well. I think mine, okay. mine, mine was better. Um yeah. Well, the other analogy is it's like an atheist being the president of the United States. Uh, yeah. I think we can check that one off the list now. But anyway, that's my opinion. Oh. <laughs> well, an open atheist. I think oh, probably no, no, most no, no. of your presidents have been atheists, uh, except for maybe W. But um, uh, yeah. He's a painter. Yeah, you know, it's still all the, all the surveys that come out of the US say they would rather see a Muslim as president than an atheist. But Bernie nearly got Dang. in. Bernie Bernie nearly changed that, you know, because he was pretty yeah. obviously a non-practicing Jew. 
Uh, anyway, the, today in in Syria with the shit that's going on, the um, rebels or the freedom fighters or whatever we want to call them, we'll get into that much later on, uh, have right. been outwardly saying, openly saying, every Alawite killed is one Alawite killed because of Assad. So the Alawites wow. are definitely a target. And this is a problem for most Alawites because, as we've said, most of them didn't didn't make any money out of this hard rule. Yeah. Most of them have just stuck to their knitting and, and been living a simple lifestyle. And they're, they're not connected to the regime. They're, they're not rich. They're not powerful. Most of them are actually poor. But because they're Alawites, there's just been a backlash against them. They say, we never asked for anything. We don't want anything. We just want to live our lives. Leave us alone. Fuck off. But because the Assads have ruled the place for so long and in the process of doing so oppressed uh, a lot of the hardline Muslims who wanted to, to, to change the constitution and, and, and uh, change the rule, there's been a backlash against the Alawites. One, I read uh, an interview with one Alawite woman whose mother had been murdered uh, because she supported the opposition over there. And this woman, this Alawite woman said, Assad doesn't care if you are Alawite, Christian or Shia. If you are against him, he will kill you. Damn. And as we're going to find out, his father was pretty much of the same stripe. And one of the questions we're going to have to ask ourselves as we go further is, so here's the Alawites, roughly 11% of the country, the population, and only a percentage of that has entered into government, into the military. How do they rule? How do they keep fighting the civil war? How do they keep themselves going, you know, perpetuate their power, their control? We're going to have to find that out in the future. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got a bunch of reviews that have come through since our first episodes went out. So uh, I want to start. We'll read them, and we have to we have to build a coffee mug to send to these people. I haven't even built a coffee mug yet, so we'll have to do that. Gotcha. Um, okay. Uh, wow. Look, look at these. All the old names, man. Most of the old names coming up here. Um, let's see. Oh, here we go. Shit kicker. From the United States, <laughs> cross the streams is uh, shit kickers. Uh, the title of his or her review, um, as if they had not already done enough for humanity with their priceless and incomparable examinations of the Caesars Alexander and the Cold War. The self-proclaimed godfather of podcasts, Cameron Wallaby Riley, and Mister <laughs> World War Two Ray Mini Me Harris have finally debuted their first contemporary history endeavor. Given the in-depth yet light-hearted dalliances of their early shows, the BS filter guaranteed to be as informative as it is entertaining for years to come. That or they are just slowly diversifying in a not-so-subtle attempt to marshal their forces and pull a sulla that will no doubt leave our children's children their clients and vassals for generations to come. Whatevs. Someone, fig- someone, someone figured out our plan. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Shit Kicker, for that generous review. Send us an email. Fuck, I don't even know where the email address is for this show. I haven't even set one up. Uh, just send me an email, Cameron, Cameron Riley at gmail.com with your address, which we probably already have because I'm sure we've sent you something before, but uh, for another review on another show. But do it again uh, if you want yeah. a gift. You could be the first person, Mr. or Mrs. Shit Kicker to get a bullshit filter coffee mug, which I will try and find some time in amongst everything else that I'm fucking doing to uh, make one today for you. Uh, That's the show, folks. Uh... uh, So I hope you learn a little bit about the Alawites and um, realize that it is absolutely key, a key component of what's going on over there today is the fact that they've been ruled by this heretical minority sect for the last 40 years in the eyes of many any final comments Ray no just that you know if you're going to be in the minority and you're going to you're going to keep power you got to do that right it's the it's a it's a careful balance which his father did very to a to a certain degree did very well not so much now and now we're all getting to watch it unravel and it's horrific